This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Don't change that dial. It's time for Navigating the Newsroom. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Andrew. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to episode number 14 of Navigating the Newsroom with Andrew and Andrew. I'm Andrew Johnson. I think I'm Andrew, too. I think you are. Yeah. Are, are you Andrew 1 or am I Andrew 1? I'm Andrew 1. Let's get this clear. I, what if I want to be Andrew 1? I think we have a problem then. <sighs> okay. I'm Andrew 1. <laughs> oh, man. I'm Andrew 2. <laughs> So, am I Andrew 3 now? Is there a third one in the room, too? <laughs> oh, Christ. We're getting too many Andrews in here. This is Navigating the Newsroom. This is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted exclusively to discussion and analysis of the HBO TV series The Newsroom. This week, we are going to be discussing the first episode of Season 2 of The Newsroom. It's an episode entitled, First Thing We Do, Let's Kill All the Lawyers. It was written by Aaron Sorkin though Ian Reichbach also contributed to the story, and it was directed by Alan Pohl, who is an executive producer on the show and has directed episodes in the past. How are you doing, Andrew? Are you ready for season two of The Newsroom and, by extension, season two of Navigating The Newsroom? I am ready. I'm so ready that the other day I went to our iTunes page and I saw the the negative review that you mentioned a week ago, because I didn't see it before. I just... I ignored these things. I just went, ah, it's over there on iTunes. And I saw it, and it has fueled me. It has entertained me. It has made me laugh. And I hope to take all of this fuel, this entertainment, and this laughter and bring it to the newsroom. Well, last season you did explicitly address a negative review on the show. So if we get any more negative reviews, we may just have to take everyone to task. We'll see. But uh, why don't you go ahead and give our listeners a quick recap about what happened in this episode. Were any lawyers killed? Sadly, no. None of the lawyers were actually killed. I mean, can we count the guy who who hurt his ankle as being killed? I don't think so. Um, And I doubt he was a lawyer anyways. No, he was a reporter. He was a reporter. I mean, poor reporters. But in this episode, basically what's happening is that we have a... There are a lot of things happening. There's number one, a deposition, which is kind of in the forefront of the episode where Will as well as uh, Mackenzie are telling their story as to how they ended up making an apparent gaffe towards something to do with the Genoa situation, which while I tend to criticize this show for telling me news I already know, I'm not quite sure what the Genoa situation is at this point in time. That is because the Genoa situation is an entirely fictional Situation. Ah, that makes sense. Okay, now I feel better. I was about to Google the hell out of it, and then um, I, and now I'm happy that I don't know what it is. Okay, so the, a gaffe in regards to the general situation, and at the same time, we're kind of being caught up as to what's happened with Newsnight since we last left them, where apparently there was an there was an instance of Will McAvoy being very McAvoyian. And calling the Tea Party the American Taliban or something to that effect. And apparently that didn't sit well with all of the quote-unquote important people in the world. 
like the heads of the company who ended up getting kicked out of Capital City because apparently no one likes being referred to the Taliban. And there's also mention of all sorts of very monumental stories that we've seen in the last couple of years, including SOPA and the Occupy Wall Street movement, which we're going to be seeing a lot of, I expect, this coming year. But more importantly, keeping in tune with the characters as they're moving forward, we have the situation where the Jim, Maggie, and the other guy who I don't like... Don, my favorite character... I knew there was something wrong with you, Andrew. Andrew number two. I knew there was something wrong with you, Don. And that triangle has had some very iffy spins where it seems as though everyone is back facing each other at this point. Where Don, at the end of the episode, walks out on Maggie. And Jim leaves to go on the campaign trail in New Hampshire just to get away from Maggie so that he doesn't have to see her every day. And I think think I might have covered it all, or I may have not have. I do not know. What else was there, Andrew? The only thing you missed is that because Jim is away on the campaign trail, there's a new character played by Hamish Linklater named Jerry Dantana, who comes up from D.C. to replace Jim. And he is the person that first receives a tip about something involving Genoa. And that's really all we know about that at this point. Andrew, number two, what did you think about this episode of the newsroom? Is it good to be back at ACN? I think we need to figure out this Andrew, number one and number two thing, because we're all confusing each other. Um, (laughs) But to get to your real question, which was about getting back to ACN and getting all of these things, I found it very strange because it, it seems to me that this episode, it got a lot of things right, and it got a lot of things just mediocre. But before we get into the real episode, I want to ask you one quick thing. There is one thing which has changed drastically between season one and season two, just with this episode we've noticed, and that is the opening credits. I want to ask you, Andrew, what did you think about the new opening credits before we get to the actual content? Well, I know a lot of people had complained about the opening credits and thought they were kind of cheesy. I thought they were okay. I did not hate them. I liked how it was just kind of snapshots of behind the scenes of a news station and stuff while the theme song played. This season, they've switched it up a bit. Now it's just a lot of scenes of, like, the city and stuff. And they've also changed the theme. The theme isn't quite performed in the exact same way. There's a little bit more piano in it this time. So I'm wondering if they're going to do what The Wire did and switch up the credits each season. What did you think? Well, if they're going to go around The Wire uh, the wire route, as long as one season involves a Tom Waits song, I'll be happy. Yeah, they'll, get, they'll bring in Tom Waits to do his version of the theme. You know what they should get him to do? They should get him to do his song, The Piano Has Been Drinking. <laughs> that's my favorite one of my favorites i love that song i like tom waits a lot guys i don't know if you guys like tom waits but i do but anyways let's let's move on with the actual content of this episode and you were asking me about what i generally thought of this episode i liked a lot of the elements there were a lot of the elements which 
to me, I found interesting because they kind of tease at things that we're going to be talking about for the rest of the season without giving that much information for it to be a full-blown discussion where I can be like, did you see Maggie's hair? And we'll just talk about Maggie's hair trying to hypothesize what the hell happened because they talk about the things like she we sent her away on this thing and it got really, really, really quick. And I'm pretty sure they're going to have to tackle that at some point. I don't think Sorkin is that much of an asshole that he will throw that into the show and just move forward and never talk about it again. Um, And I'm looking forward to finding out about that. Um, You even see this weird moment, um, which I really loved, and mainly because it kind of made me feel like between the time that we've left ACN and we're back now, Will and Mac are kind of on a different playing field and they might just be moving closer to reaching that romantic comedy level of they're just trying to get together which is the scene near the end of the episode at the bar where she's talking about how she left her purse I don't know but the way it played a certain relationship tone which we haven't seen before with these two characters and I like that a lot But overall, with this episode, what I really like is how well the comedy beats worked out. I mean, if you play the first first three minutes of this episode with um, Will McAvoy berating the lawyers, trying to explain to them how all of these things happened, even with the simple construction of the question of... If person A didn't drop off a bridge and person B didn't fall over him and person C didn't didn't drink their alcohol too fast and person X didn't even think about your day this morning, would you have said what you said on the news? And like every time you hear that question come up, because it comes up at least like three or four times, the wording, the 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 rhythm of it, it just kind of makes you laugh in itself. And there are so many parts of this episode which does that, and I like it for that. Yeah, overall, I agree with you. Sorkin's writing, he, you know, it's just what we expect from him. It's very snappy. It has a great flow to it. Overall, I thought this episode was very much in keeping with what we saw last season. You know, I've read a lot of reviews that say they feel like this season is an improvement. I'm not sure how things will be in episodes two and three, but from this premiere... It felt to me like the show was doing a lot of things right, and it was also doing some of the same things that people complained about last season. But overall, I I really liked it. I like how there are certain plot things that they are moving through very quickly. I'm not quite sure yet how I feel about the flashback structure and, and how in the present day there's all this legal stuff going on involving Operation Genoa and we're constantly flashing back to see how we got to this point. I'm not quite sure yet how I feel about that, and and we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But overall, I really liked it. I'm I'm glad to be back in Aaron Sorkin's world, and I'm eager to see where we go from here. I'm very optimistic about about where things are going to go. And we got some Sloan in this episode. So that was good because it took us a couple episodes last season before we finally were introduced to Sloan. So I'm glad that here from the very beginning she's a character and she has stuff that she's trying to do. But but you have to you have to say Andrew, we have to admit that this episode is a lesser episode of the season by default because we didn't get any Patton Oswald. It is, and we know he's coming, so 
I actually saw, and I don't know how, how, how serious I can take this at all, um, a tweet by Oswald on Twitter last night while the show was airing, where he kind of said, oh shit, they cut me out of this one, because I remember that, and I don't know, I, I really don't know if that's supposed to be a joke or not, but... Well, because we talked about in our in- intro to season two about how originally there were going to be ten episodes, but then Aaron Sorkin did some restructuring, and they had some reshoots, and now it's only nine episodes. Maybe that's where some of the stuff with Oswald got cut, or maybe it just got rearranged where now he's in a that footage is in a different episode. So, so by the by the token of saying that Sorkin had to rearrange and recut to deal with at least the first episode or the first two, are we basically saying that we can't judge him until episode three? No, I, I don't think we're saying that because I would argue, well, if he's reshot stuff, then we definitely need to judge him on this new result that we have now because clearly if he thought this was fixing things then we have the right to uh to to say whether or not we thought he fixed certain problems or whether or not he may have written himself some new problems um but but let's start talking specifics i want to leave the topic of the structure and this genoa stuff i want to leave that till later and kind of make that our main topic for the episode, because it appears like this season as a whole might be structured differently from last season. Uh, so to start off, I just want to ask you, what did you think of the love triangle stuff? Because that came up in our discussions a lot last season and played a major role in the plot. And it seems like now they're not going to really be dealing with that anymore. Yeah, it seems pretty clear that Sorkin has said, look, guys, you've had enough of this. I'm agreeing with you. I say, fuck this storyline. Everyone is just going to be miserable and alone, and we're going to be awesome with that. I kind of I hope that they're going to have some Sloan Dawn scenes together where they're hooking up and just basically being dirtbags to each other because that's going to be awesome. Yeah, they've definitely opened up the door for a Don Sloan relationship, which they sort of hinted at at the end of last season, um, where Sloan said that she might go out with him if he bothered to ask her out. I really like the fact that there is no more love triangle. In the season finale a year ago, Maggie and Jim made out, and then she recommitted to Don after he made this big romantic gesture. And I was kind of worried going into the season, like, oh, they're just going to keep dragging this out, where Don and Maggie are newly committed to each other, but she still has feelings for Jim, and that's going to cause problems, and it's going to be the same thing we spent all of season one seeing. But no, in this premiere, they're just kind of like, nope. Don and Maggie are no longer together. The thing with her and Jim and the Sex in the City bus wound up on YouTube, so they broke up. Jim leaves to go cover the Mitt Romney campaign, so he's not even around to be with Maggie. And yeah, as as we mentioned, there's the potential for some Don Sloan action. So I really like that they're not just going to be repeating themselves. But, I mean, what else can you expect when... Where when we move from that love triangle to what will be the eventual new love triangle of the season, which will be Will, Mac, and Marsha Gay Harden. <laughs> Fingers crossed that that actually happens. That would be amazing. <laughs> but but anyways, being being a bit more serious, talking about the romantic relationships within this show, I mentioned my own little hypothesis about what's going on with Will and Mac right now. Do you see anything there? You know, 
I thought that that scene was pretty much in keeping with what we saw in season one. Yes, there's tension between the two of them, but on a certain level, they're still colleagues. They still have to get along professionally. They're still friends, kind of. So I was able to buy that he would buy her drinks and she would, you know, if she would forget her purse. And I just thought it worked as a comedic beat, not necessarily as a potentially romantic one. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll put money down and see who wins at the end of the season. We'll see. It's entirely possible that that was a uh, sign of things to come, that maybe he'll be buying her drinks more often in the future. But yeah, the the romance stuff, I'm just glad they got it all out of the way. And now it seems like they're going to start focusing on some of the other characters, like now Neil, played by Dev Patel, might have a little thing going with this uh, Occupy Wall Street girl. Well, I mean, it's obvious that this is going to be a topic which is going to be discussed at length in the show for this season, because Occupy Wall Street was one of the biggest news stories of the last year. But the the thing about it is, and I find this very strange, is if you remember season one, there was this, this feeling that I kind of got of the character of Neil, which wasn't really spoken mainly because he wasn't focused on too directly, but he seemed like that he was he was written as this character who was this weird guy in the corner who we didn't know anything about so we just kept calling him weird but magically he was getting women like no nobody's business and at the same time this this is one of the first times we're actually seeing him interact with women in a initial stage and it's kind of weird and that just seemed odd to me I, I don't know. Overall, it works for me. Um, you're right. He he did have a girlfriend last season, and I don't believe they broke up. No, no, no. I, I I'm not, not. No. If you if you watch some of that season again, you'll see him with around three different women within that season, and I'm talking about in bed, <laughs> kind of with women. Really? Okay. I mu- I I cannot remember that. I should have gone back and rewatched some of season one before coming into season two because I only remember that he was dating that one girl who her father had died in the World Trade Center attack, and that was kind of a a, a little subplot happening during the uh, Osama episode. But yeah, I thought that that was the girl that he was dating and was in a relationship with. Well, you know how these things go. The show moves really fast through time, and magically there's another <laughs> girl there. You just you just don't talk about the time that he cried. So you're saying that we're just supposed to assume that they broke up? I That's what I'm assuming. Okay. Because I, I agree with you. It did feel to me like there was some chemistry or some sexual tension between him and this Occupy Wall Street woman. And I'm sorry, I cannot remember her name or the actress. I'm trying to look it up. But it did seem like they did have some sort of connection. Am I wrong about that? No, definitely. I mean, it looked like it was there up until the point where he started to kind of say, look, I hear you, you have an idea, but you're kind of being crazy. And I think you should do this instead. And she's just like, nope, I'm not going down that road you're you're the bad guy you're the one who who always tells the world it's bad but it's the bad that we have to live with as opposed to doing something about it and i don't know how wrong or right this is you know 
I, I like how you can tell they're kind of attracted to each other, but they also do have that tension where she doesn't trust him because he is from the media and she's concerned that the media will twist their message and what they're trying to go for. But at the same time, he does have some very good points about the hierarchy or lack thereof and the lack of leadership and the unclear goals and demands. I mean, these are some of the same criticisms that were leveled against Occupy Wall Street in real life. So Neil here is, in a sense, warning her of about what is to come. Yeah, and while we might already know the outcome, let's pretend like we don't, and let's look forward to the news. Right. But they're both right in one way or another. The media did twist a lot of things, and there were arguably some thing, some some legitimate grounds on which Occupy Wall Street could be criticized. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they develop that relationship, especially if apparently Neil is no longer in a relationship, and they're just going to pretend that that never happened. It's not unlike Sorkin to do that. I don't know. I feel like usually we get, at least get some acknowledgement of a breakup. If if there's a character that did play a major role in at least one episode, I feel like we usually see it. No, you don't think so? Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about some of this Sopus stuff. We are once again reintroduced to Leona Lansing, played by Jane Fonda, and Reese Lansing, played by Chris Messina. And there's this big SOPA hearing that Reese is not allowed into because it seems like Congress is trying to shut out ACN. And the reason they're shutting out ACN is because of Will McAvoy's comments in season one that compared the Tea Party to the American Taliban. Or, excuse me, they called... They they didn't compare them. Andrew, I'd just like to let you know you're no longer allowed into the podcasting league of podcasts. They're they're not admitting (laughs) you anymore because you just told the world about the American Taliban. (laughs) Yes, because he called the Tea Party the American Taliban. What did you think of that whole SOPA stuff? I kind of liked it, but I also sort of found it a little bit confusing with how the episode was edited. I think I think my biggest fear is that Sorkin will have this SOPA bit as just what we saw in this episode, mainly because I'd like to say he isn't a fan or likes technology in any sense. So he's like, SOPA happened, that was a big thing, I half mentioned it, I'm done. But just talking about how it actually played in the episode, I thought it was okay. I mean, I, I like the idea of, of finally getting to see some of the repercussions of this idea of the of the news night that we've been talking about for a whole year. For a whole season, we've been fighting with Will McAvoy and Mac to get this show to be independent and allow them to say what they have to say, to do what they have to do, to create this informed electorate, which is what they've always been talking about. But at the same time, they still answer to other people other than the electorate. They answer to their bosses, who we've been fighting for the whole season, saying, look, I know you guys think that the world is like this, but we want to make it like something else. So the the obvious blowback of all of this is getting to see how they are affected by the words of Will McAvoy and Mackenzie. It is obvious that this is going to be a point of tension and everything that we saw them win at the end of season one where they got to basically blackmail their way into having their own way is going to become null and void 
pretty quick, I'm sure. Because the question is going to come to these heads of company and industry saying, I guess that is a cost of going against Will and Mackenzie, but is that a heavier cost than having the entire political world ignore us because we have become the, vo- the we have become the rebels of our industry? Right, and that was something that Leona Lansing had suggested could happen at one point in season one. She did say there are people in Congress that are more conservative that maybe sympathize with the Tea Party. And if we say too many inflammatory things, they will not be happy and that will come back to bite us. So here in this premiere, we're starting to see that she was right and that is starting to occur. So it'll be interesting to see if that continues or if Will and Mac will decide to change their message at any point for political favors. Is there anything else you want to say about that or do you want to move on to the other big new character that we met in this episode. Before we get to the the next big new character, I'd like to mention a, a, a recurring character who we've who I think is most important to this show and I hope does the same exact thing that happened in this episode in every episode of this season and that is um, is America the greatest nation in the world? That is her character name, okay? <laughs> she yes. appeared, and we got the, the 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 sorority girl gag we expected. I expected it to be at the end of the season, but we got it right up in front, and that was great, guys. I'm really glad that we saw that that sorority girl who appeared in the pilot of the show and then showed up in the finale. I'm glad that we immediately see she's back. She's still working for Will. She's his intern. She is seems to be pretty good at her job, going and finding out whatever information. She is going to die. You think she's going to die? She, I mean, it seems like she's willing to do whatever he wants. Her soul is going to die. I don't know. She could succeed. Who knows? It's like I said in the intro episode, I think it'd be great if the show ends with her taking over for Will. (laughs) I think that would be kind of nice to see this person go from not really understanding a lot about the news to really coming to appreciate it. But yeah, it it was very nice to see her, and I'm hoping she continues to pop up throughout the season. You're going to meet Will now, okay? We've met. He's not going to remember. Will, this is Jerry Dantana. We've met. Of course we have. How you been, man? We had a long talk the last time he was in D.C. Great. Jerry's going to cover for Jim for a couple of weeks. I have no idea why you let him go. Because I did. I'm sure Terry's a good guy and an excellent senior, but I fear change, and that should be respected. You'll get used to me. And then Jim will come back, and it'll be a hellscape. Why don't we send Harry to New Hampshire? Who's Harry? He is. Jerry. See what I mean? No, no one does. Can I mention something? Sure. I think this network should be doing stories about the administration's counterterrorism policies, and I think while I'm in New York, it would be a good time for me to get it started. It's actually not a great time for me, but that go-getter initiative you have, I'm not crazy about that either. Remember that long talk we had in D.C.? Mm-hmm. Do you want to lead, or do you want to follow? He wants to follow. And barely that. Come in. It's my office. Drone strike. I don't believe this. Drone strike. This is Jerry Dantana who will be covering for Jim for a couple of weeks. Drone strike. Hmm? Drone strike. Can't understand what you're saying. You can too understand what I... Reuters. This is what I was talking about. United States Predator drone strikes vehicle in northwest Pakistan. It's one piece of paper. I left the wire report in my office and on the way here I decided I wanted a prop. You didn't think to just have someone print it out? A lot of better ideas are coming to me as I'm standing here, but why don't we let the past be the past? 
Let's talk about the other big new character this season, and that is the character of Jerry. And I'm glad I remembered his name because Will certainly couldn't remember his name. Jim? Harry. No, Larry. No, Jerry. Harry. Mm, Jerry, yeah. He's played by Hamish Linklater, and he's Jim's replacement. What did you think of this new character? I kind of liked him because he kind of showed a sense of hubris that you don't really see um, in a lot of the characters. A lot of the characters, I mean, for the exception of Mac, they all cave every time to Will, anytime they have any sort of confrontation as to what should be done in the workplace. Even Charlie caves to Will from time to time. But something about Jerry, like he was, even though he obviously had a really stupid idea, um, and we saw it play out in the end of the episode, it almost feels like his own hubris is going to is going to create something that we haven't seen before on this show. We're going to see tensions in a different kind of way. It's not going to be misogynistic because there's no females in the in the mix to to create this problem. But there's going to be a sense of just somebody who has ideas other than what Will and Mackenzie have for this show. And it will create an, a weird mix of what this show can be and what this show shouldn't be. Because if we use what happened in this episode of Newsnight, not just this episode of Newsroom, but Newsnight, they're going to have a lot of kinks. And it, and it kind of hints at why the Genoa incident ended up happening in the first place. I, I like the character. I like how he's new and he doesn't really understand how things work and he has his own ideas. So yeah, initially he is going to be a bit of a challenge for Will, but to be fair, the reason that there was this incident involving his panel correspondent on Newsnight, it's largely because Will didn't speak up when everyone expected him to speak up, and in most situations he would speak up. And the reason he didn't speak up is because he was still feeling a little bit bitter about how he's not going to be covering the 9-11 tribute stuff. And that was the one part of the show that didn't really gel for me in this episode. I, I didn't quite understand, you know, why does Will care about this 9-11 tribute so much? What exactly does it mean for him professionally and personally if he doesn't get to cover it? And why would he choose keeping silent during this panel discussion? Why would that be a little act of rebellion that he does as a result of that? It just didn't really connect to me. Well, okay, let me take that piece by piece. Number one, the actual panel as to why it kind of... Uh, why it went bad and not just because of his silence. Silence is its own little problem. Yes, um, Will McAvoy has previously and in a lot of occasions carried shows by interjecting into people's bullshit. But the thing about it is that when they're constructing these panels, they're not constructing these panels to create bullshit, right? They're not, they're not trying to make up uh, an individual who will come in and be the opposing side in a sense of trying to point at the idiot. They want to make the intelligent panel, and that's what they've always wanted the show to be. So the moment when this guy, Jerry, comes in and says, this guy is going to be great, and it's even worse when you see him come off of the panel and Jerry kind of talks to Will for a second and says, um, I teed him up perfectly for you. What was your problem? It kind of hints that Jerry did it intentionally 
just so that he would have someone radical on the show who he could say, you're being an idiot for thinking this this ridiculous level of, of the extreme as opposed to thinking somewhere in the middle where we're all trying to figure out why the world is this horrible um, and what we should really be doing with our morals as well as all of these other elements. And that's why that in itself didn't work regardless of whether Will interjected or not. The 9-11 show, the 9-11 um, tribute broadcast Anyone would be bothered about that. I mean, that's just general career progression. Even if you're already the top of your game, it doesn't mean that you're okay with having a few extra extra days of not being at work. You you want your employer to always want you because that affirms your employment and your importance in the co- in the construct of the business. The moment when they realize that you are a problem, you have become this problem where it's not just that you are radical or you are someone who is going to cause problems in the world, but you are a problem for them. You realize that there is a problem with your position and that is bothersome and at the same time disrespectful. As a, as a as an employee and as a professional, so that would bother anyone. Whether it would bother someone like Will, who is, as he likes to say, an affable individual, of course it would. And how would he retort? He's not gonna cause a fit and go up into the top floor and tell people about how he's the best and he should have the job. He's just gonna sit down there and just not work as hard, which might come out through a bit of silence. Now, it might not have been the best way to write it into the show. Maybe Sorkin's better way would have been to have Will confirm this theory with his co-workers. Oh, wait, they did that in the bar scene. I think the bar scene is what ruined it, really, because I don't think we needed that moment of Will going, yes, I did it on purpose, because it's obvious he did it on purpose. There's no other way for you to see it other than he did it on purpose. Because the moment when um, Mackenzie is talking into his ear for the sixth time saying, ask this question, you already know that he's decided he's not going to ask the question. He's going to let this guy continue on his stupidity and see what the world thinks of it. And that's all it was. My problem was I wasn't quite sure why he was doing it. And then when they confirmed that he was doing it because he was bitter about the 9-11 tribute stuff, I just didn't think that made a lot of sense. Because you've got this guy who comes on, starts saying things that normally you would think Will would jump all over. I mean, he starts kind of implying that it doesn't matter if innocent people are killed as long as terrorists are defeated. And I feel like normally Will would jump all over that. So I kind of got the impression, well, maybe he's just being silent because he wants this guy's words to sort of... He, he wants him to kind of damn himself in the eyes of his public of, of the public through what he's saying. And he just wants to let him keep saying crazy things. But then when they revealed no, it was because of the 9-11 tribute stuff, I was just kind of like, well, wait, how does that help him? Like, if he wanted to get back at the establishment... He could have said something else against the Tea Party or done something else on the show that would have more actively aggravated them. That's not about aggravating anyone. He is the one who's aggravated and he realizes that nothing he does in his own vein would be enough 
to satisfy that aggravation. The only response to something like that is to just do less. People generally have around two responses to whenever their their safety is being threatened. It's so it's surrender or attack. Will has been doing nothing but attack all of all of this show. So what is he going to do? He's going to sit back and watch what happens when he doesn't do anything. And that's what this episode was. I mean, I, I can understand you saying that you didn't quite get why that was his mode of retaliation. But I don't understand why you'd go so far as to say that it's a stupid mode of retaliation. Because... In retaliating, he is undermining what he set out to do with Newsnight. But what he's been doing with Newsnight is being is being completely undermined by the company, by the point where they're going, look, the chips are falling, and I don't know what's going to happen with you guys. I understand that. It just It just felt a little weird for me to see them coming to Will and saying you've screwed things up so much that it's just going to be safer if we don't let you do the 9-11 tribute stuff. It just seems weird that he would sit back and take that. I feel like the Will McAvoy we saw in season one would fight back or would, would he would he would resist in such a way that wasn't just laziness. He would resist in a way that did not undo what he had been trying to craft Newsnight into. You know, he wouldn't just let some person say all of these things and get away with it. That just feels hypocritical to me, to to a certain degree. I, I just don't feel like it was executed very well. I can sort of see what they were going for, but it just, it just didn't flow within the episode um, very naturally to me. Okay. But uh, let's move on to our main topic of the week, which is this new structure that they've put into place and this new character played by Marcia Gay Harden. Apparently, something happened involving a Genoa operation where Newsnight falsely reported on this and it was factually inaccurate and as a result, now there's some big lawsuit, and Marsha Gay Harden is questioning everybody because she's ACN's lawyer. What do you think of this structure? Because I, I kind of like how it's different from the first season, but I also have some mixed feelings about what it means in terms of how things are going to play out from here. Well, do we know whether this structure is going to be for the whole season? We don't know how long it's going to last, but we do know that for at least the next few episodes, we are going to see what this whole Genoa situation was and how that came to pass. And so as a result, we are constantly going to be flipping back and forth between the present and the past. Well, I mean, as a as a plot telling device, there's nothing completely wrong with it. But I did it did feel a little odd to me, and I wasn't sure where the show was going as its own. What generally perturbs me about this kind of thing is that the show, when it does this, you already know the endpoint you're leading to, which is that deposition. Um, and the only question is, how long are we going to wait to end up? To, to, for the for the flashbacks to reach the present, exactly. You say three, four episodes. I say I don't know. Um, but the show in itself, it didn't hurt it, but it didn't really uh, 
bring it to a level that I enjoyed it more because of it. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's going to last a minimum of three or four episodes. It could very well go the whole season, and we spend the whole season following this Genoa thing from when it was first mentioned to where it apparently became this huge incident. And you're right, the problem is we know where it's going to end up. And there's a part of my brain that is like, okay, well, that doesn't matter because to a certain extent, we know where all of these new stories end up because we lived through them. So the stuff that's based on real life, we know how that's ultimately going to turn out. But this is something new. This is something fictional. And I'm not sure I like how Sorkin immediately just says, oh, it's fictional, but we're setting this in quote-unquote real life, so therefore the audience must know it's not real. So we'll, we'll just go ahead and acknowledge, yeah, this didn't actually happen. This isn't a real thing. The Genoa incident is a mistake. So I can understand why he does that, but at the same time, I think it would be more interesting if the show did introduce an element of fiction and left us uncertain as to whether or not they were going to follow through with it. I hope they kind of make Genoa the reason why Romney loses. <laughs> that would be really interesting. And the fact that their their in, incorrect broadcast would be directly related to Romney losing. Yeah, that would be really weird, though, and I'm not sure how they would make it work, because what little we learn about Genoa and the, the whole situation in this episode, all we really know is that they went on the air and they said something involving, like, sarin gas in Afghanistan, like the military was using sarin gas or, or something, and that was actually incorrect, and now they are in a bunch of trouble for it. And, and you're right, because we already know where it ends up, I'm not sure there's any real tension or suspense to be gained from that. Yeah, definitely. But I guess the real question is, uh, last year, when the show just began, we kind of all started to get on the bandwagon of complaining that the show relies too heavily on factual, on real news stories that we already know about. We even already mentioned it in this in this discussion. Are we now about to complain that Sorkin has made a fictitious news story that we don't know anything about and have some things to discover in and are going to say that that's not good either? Is there a good? Yeah, because he already told us what happens. We, he's showing us the end. He's showing us the results. I, I, I think it would be much more exciting if he was to introduce fictional elements and allowed us to follow them where we, we weren't quite sure how things were going to turn out. Like, oh, is this Genoa thing within the universe of the show? Is this now something real that actually happened? Are we going to kind of be spun off into an alternate reality where this Genoa thing really did happen amidst all of these quote-unquote real-life events? I think that would be interesting. But no, Sorkin seems so dead set on making sure that this is set in quote-unquote the real world that he's telling us from the very beginning, relax, everyone, I know this didn't happen in real life, so I'm going to make sure you know that this didn't really happen in the show. And I don't know, it just it's, didn't quite work for me. It's possible that as it develops, I'll be pulled in by it more, but right now I'm, I'm very concerned that it's not going to have much dramatic impact. Yeah, that's, that's possible. I am very happy to see Marcia Gay Harden, though, because she is incredible. And to all our listeners, if you haven't seen The Mist, go see The Mist, and then come back and see her in the newsroom, and you'll wonder 
why is this crazy woman questioning Will McAvoy? She really needed to be fucked. <laughs> Maybe you're right. Maybe that Will Mac Marsha Gay Hard and Love Triangle will come to fruition. Maybe maybe that's the surprise that Sorkin has waiting for us at the end of this season. That's the twist. <laughs> um, the only other thing really I think worth commenting on in this episode is what you mentioned at the beginning. Maggie's hair is different and something happened in Uganda. We don't know what yet. So that's going to come up at some point where she's going to go off to Uganda. And again, I'm excited about that, but I'm also kind of like, oh, why'd you have to tell us? You're spoiling it. Well, you know, it could work out. It could work. I, You know, th- th- this whole flashback structure, I think that that can work in individual episodes. I'm not sure how well it's going to play out over the course of a season, though. So we'll have to see. The last thing I'll say is that if you, people, if you're listening and you complained about the depiction of women on the show last season, uh, you're probably going to find stuff to complain about this season because all the women here are still acting pretty goofy. You know, Mac forgets her purse. She doesn't realize that she's on a conference call at one point. Uh, Sloan brings a blank piece of paper to talk with Will. And admittedly, it's hilarious, but also kind of absent-minded. So if, if you thought the show had women problems in season one, some of those issues are still there. If, if you thought there were women problems in season one and you're still watching season two, I think there might be a problem with you. I thought that there were some a, f- a few women problems in season one. I don't necessarily think they were quite as offensive as some of, some critics said. But yeah, I think there were a few problems. There are some people out there who it offended to their core. At least that's the way I took it, based on how they were expressing it in their writings and in all of the discussions going on online. And if they were that offended and they're still watching... I think there's something wrong there. Well, some of them are TV critics, to be fair, so it may be their job. I mean, I have read reviews that said they thought that this season, or at least the first three to four episodes, which critics were allowed to see, that they thought this season was better and had improved on some of those flaws. Uh, I can't see it yet. (laughs) So maybe in episodes two through four, we'll see some, some better female characters. But right now, it just seemed like a lot of the same on the whole. I saw one article where they compared Maggie and Mac to the characters in Dumb and Dumber. I don't know if I'd go that far. I still think that they are probably the weakest characters on the show, and I'm I'm glad that we've at least gotten a hint that maybe they'll be doing some more substantial stuff with Maggie this season. But for now, it looks like Mac is still just going to be the savvy but still absent-minded and kind of goofy EP that she was in season one. So, all right. Is there anything else you want to say about this episode of the newsroom? Not really. I mean, we could, we could talk more about how Will and Marsha Gay Harden are going to get it on. Yeah, I, I think that could happen. I'm really hoping to see Neil and Occupy Wall Street Lady get it on. I'm really hoping Terry Crews will come back and maybe he can be, have a love interest. How how weird would it be if Sloane found herself caught between Dawn, Jerry, who shares her passion for drones, 
and Terry Crews, who has all the muscles. Oh, all the drones jokes. Oh, we didn't mention that. (laughs) (laughs) Drones! Drones! There was a lot of drone conversation in this episode, and Sloan does share that with Jerry. So who knows? Maybe maybe Sorkin just decided to replace one love triangle with another. Yep, that's how you do it. <laughs> All right. Well, that'll wrap it up for this episode of Navigating the Newsroom. We would love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at navigatingthenewsroom at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. So if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That would help us get the word out about the program. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including Cinema Fix, The Thin Place, and our new weekly podcast all about the Showtime series Dexter, Avenging Angels. Andrew, where can people find more of you and your work? Um, on the internet. I think that's where it is. Is there any particular place on the internet they can find it, or should they just, like, browse the internet in general? Generally, you just open Google Chrome, and there it appears. Um, I think that's how it works. I could be wrong. Okay. Good to know. Well, you can find some of my writing at filmgeekradio.com and moviemezzanine.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back that'll wrap it up for this episode andrew sign us out today i had a burrito it was quite lovely this has been a film geek radio production film geek radio yeah